0: Now, a lot of people think, oh, is that a major subdivision or a minor subdivision? It can be all of the above. You might even just be taking 100 acres and splitting it into two.
1: Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Eberkos, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate,
2: and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? My name is Mason McDonald, and I am here today with my co-host, Dan Haberkost, and this is the Big Picture Blueprint, and I'm very excited to have a repeat guest, our first repeat guest on the show, because she is just so awesome, and she is involved in so much, but before we bring her in, Dan, how are you doing? I'm great, Mason. I'm
1: back out in California, enjoying the uh, sunny and 75-degree weather in December.
2: Yeah, I can't say the same. Uh, It's uh, 27 right now and cloudy and snowing in Colorado, but that means it's ski season and we're excited to hit the mountain. But today, guys, we have Alicia Jarrett back on the show from Supercharged Offers. Uh, Alicia, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, guys. Hearing you guys talking about skiing, though getting me excited i need to need to strap on my skis again at some point but uh, i'm in phoenix today and it's blue sky and sunshine and i think it's in about the 70s to 80s so perfect day i
2: i want to be jealous but to show off i was in mexico last week so it's uh i'm okay i'm okay uh even even though i'm slipping on my driveway and it's icy and snowy and cloudy and horrible right now but just like you said it's ski season so it's uh it's gonna be a yeah fun fun winter and i'm
0: so proud to be your first repeat guest that's awesome i didn't know that
2: well i we're honored that you're our first repeat guest Uh, you have so much to offer our viewers and it's so applicable to so many parts of real estate investing whether you're in the land space or single or multi-family homes or just in general with business uh your lead generation methods and marketing strategies and your systems and your business and your team building and your leadership and i could go on and on and on uh because i just uh, respect the hell out of you and what you've created but aj today we're going to be talking about land entitlement so for those who don't even know what that means why don't you explain it to the audience
0: yeah cool you'll, you'll hear a number of different terms out there you'll hear value add entitlement subdivision, you'll hear um, forced appreciation, you'll hear all of these terms. Essentially, they mean the same thing. It's when you're taking a raw piece of land and creating that into better opportunities to be able to do more with it. Now, a lot of people say, oh, is that a major subdivision or a minor subdivision? It can be all of the above. You might even just be taking 100 acres and splitting it into two. like, Or you might be taking 100 acres and splitting that into you know, a hundred one acre bathles, it can mean a whole bunch of things. But essentially you're entitling the property to be able to do more with it, therefore extracting more value out of that. So it takes the the concept of a simple land flip, taking the land as is, making sure the title's marketable, marketing that again. And in the middle there, you're really injecting your expertise into something that the property owner either doesn't know how to do, doesn't have the time to do, or is just, you know, all too hard basco, right? And that's the value add that you need to offer as a this stuff
2: that's great and i know dan you talk about it all the time and i think a lot of people don't understand what raw land is yeah and the difference between raw land and vacant land and i think uh alicia you did a great job explaining right there of what the actual entitlement process is
1: yeah agreed so so we wanted to do a case study and so as we go through the whole conversation uh, we're going to be referencing one of the deals you've done recently. So can you tell us a little bit about that one, AJ?
0: Yeah, sure can, Dan. And let, let me start by painting the picture of where this deal started, okay? Because I think in, in unpacking this case study, what I want to do is get into, first of all, the mind of the seller when you're doing a, or I'm not even going to call them a seller, the property owner, because they're not essentially selling the property in this case study. Um, the property owner versus what what the mindset we need to have as the entitlement expert and then what we're really thinking of with exit strategies as well. So this particular case study that I'm going to go through has been 11 months in the making. Let me just state that up front, 11 months. It's like we've given, uh, I was about to say, it's like we've given birth to this and now we've got a toddler because that kind of feels like the process we've gone through. <laughs> but um, and, and the reason why I want to state that up front a lot of these deals are not as simple as, you know, previous flips. They're not as simple as just taking a property, making sure the market, that the, the title is good and putting that back out to the market, right? There's a whole bunch more that needs to be involved here. And this also includes the use of, of really good uh, real estate attorneys, doing some surveys. Like there's a whole range of things that need to happen here, right? So this particular property that I'm going to go through is uh, we reached out to the seller yeah, just over 11 months ago. And what we sent out to the seller was some marketing that was not, hey, I want to buy your property at rock bottom dollar, or hey, I want to, you know, make you an offer. It was an inquiry letter as to why they haven't made use of their property. Okay. So let's again think through the lens of the property owner. If you're sitting on a property that you're seeing all around you, all this development happening, and you're sitting there wondering, hmm, I wonder when a developer is going to come and knock on my door or, I wonder what it would take for me as the property owner to split this property up and do something with it. Or where do I start with understanding how I can make better use of my property? All those questions seem to come to mind for the typical property owner when they're seeing development go up all around them, right? They're not interested in a rock bottom deal. They're obviously not interested in um, sometimes selling their property because then they can see what someone else is going to be doing with it. So when we go out and do marketing to these property owners, we're literally saying to them in black and white on, on our letter, hey, we can see you've got a property that may be eligible to do some entitlement work or subdivision work. You've done nothing with it. Now, we don't want to be accusatory here. So say you've done nothing with it. Maybe you've thought about it, but you don't know where to start. Or maybe you haven't got the time to do it. So we'd like to have a conversation with you about how we can structure that so that you win and we win and that the people that are going to use the property wins. And I guess that's the other thing with entitlement. You don't want to come into the the entitlement deal thinking I I don't want to sound dismissive here of anyone listening, but you don't want to come in thinking greedy. You want to think, how can I structure this so everyone wins? Because the other thing to keep in mind here is a lot of people that are sitting on really good deals, they know what they're sitting on, right? They're not they're not dumb. They know what they're sitting on. They know that if there was something done with their property, they could get twice the value for it. They just don't know where to start. So this deal in particular, well, we went out to this property owner. He he picked up the phone and called us. Um, I think I have spent probably 10, 11 hours on different Zoom calls and phone calls over the space of those 11 months with this property owner going through all kinds of scenarios. Okay. Because he knows what he's sitting on. So when it got to the point of getting it under contract, what we did is we set it up under a joint venture structure. Now, before I go into the JV structure and and how that's all put together, have you guys got questions on how we approach the seller?
2: Yeah, I think um I want to back or unpack one of the points you made of just aligning your marketing material to who your seller is, where this is not the person that bought the desert square in Arizona 40 years ago and doesn't know anything about land. It's clearly in an area that is seeing growth and development and whether they've owned it for a short period of time, a long period of time, or inherited it, you have to make sure that that marketing material is not the pawn shop, we buy land for cash. Because they have sophisticated developers reaching out to them, I'm sure, through various marketing means or just direct conversations in the neighborhood. But AJ, I do want to ask, how did you select the market where this deal was Um, And you don't have to say which which market it is, but how did you choose to send out um, entitlement marketing material in this area?
0: Yeah, um, I guess the first thing is from a data perspective, we really wanted to ensure that we were going after properties that that met a certain level of criteria for particular entitlements, right? So we chose anywhere between 5 and 20 acres. Because we didn't want to get into the major subdivision that we were going to be out in the middle of nowhere. right? We wanted to make sure that it was around developed areas. So it had to be between um, a certain size range. It had to have potential road access. Um, It needed to be in areas that were currently being developed or had earmarked for development with what's going on around it. So doing a little bit of research into those areas. And also areas that we knew that we had buyers in as well. So as you guys know, we tend to focus most of our deals in all, all of our deals in Florida. So we had a couple of counties in Florida that we went out and said mailing out to. And, and the reason why we did that, because um, a lot of people are thinking, hmm, five acres, why would you want to entitle that? If you can do a minor subdivision where you're taking a five acre property and either splitting it into five one acre deals, or maybe even just depending upon what's around it, splitting it in half. There's still money to be made in those deals, and they're a lot easier. As it was, this seller that came back to us, his parcel is just under 10 acres, and it would be perfect. I mean, it ticked all the boxes, guys. Um, What are those boxes? So once, uh, and and I guess before I go through these boxes, let's just go back to your question. Don't overthink the data in the beginning, folks, because you will not know everything about this property until the lead calls you and you start to look at it in detail. Because the other stuff that you're going to have to investigate when you're doing your due diligence is things like impact fees. Um, and again, you can do some of that research beforehand, but every city in a county can be different when it comes to that. So impact fees, utilities on the street, uh, the the precedent of what's being done in the area. So is it high density, or low density? Now, what's all the stuff that you're looking at there? The other thing that you'll want to need to, to keep in mind when you're looking at the property is not only the current zoning, But is there any future designations for zoning? Because a lot of people will look at an initial property and go, oh, that's zoned agricultural, strike it off the list. But it might currently be zoned agricultural because of the 30, 14 years of history of that property. But right next to it is a whole bunch of either commercial or residential properties. So the area itself might have a future designation of vacant residential. Now, you're not going to know that just from an initial data pool, right? So you need to make sure you're looking at every single property and going through your checklist of what what needs to be in there.
2: And what tools are you using to find out that information?
0: The phone. Uh, so obviously we're, we're using, um, obviously, online tools, so GIS mapping, the county site, um, going then into local utility providers and looking at stuff in there, um, glide if you need it. Uh, in Florida, we also use Mapwise. Mapwise is a great tool. It's a paid tool, but it's got some great stuff in it as well. But most of it is talking to city planning and zoning, um, and the local county property appraiser and getting as much information as we can there.
1: Okay. And can you make the distinction for our audience uh, between the minor and major subdivision in specifically, you don't have to say where, but specifically where you're doing business? that? me.
0: Yeah. So a minor subdivision um, is essentially, and, and I'll, I'll put this in two buckets. Now, here's the thing, guys. I'm not going to call myself an expert in this stuff. Like Marshall's a guy for an expert. We lean on him pretty heavily. Um, he's awesome. So if I've got questions about deals, I'm like, Mike, what do you make of this? Mike. So I think the thing to realize is you don't need to know all of this stuff yourself. You can lean on different people out there who are experts in this as well. But um, in in my view, a minor subdivision carries two things. Number one, it's a simple split. So you're splitting one property into two or maybe that five acre property into five one acre parcels, et cetera. It's easy. And the second, so minor being it's only a small split, The other thing with minor is the paperwork involved. So with some counties and some cities, when you go to them with a property and say, hey, can I subdivide this? They'll get you there, the process. And that process can range from doing an online application. They literally uh, allocate new APNs and and legal descriptions and you're done. Like that can be a simple minor split, right? You need to pay for a survey. You need to get some information. You submit it. Maybe it goes to a review process with the county or the city. And then if they sign it off because everything around it is the same, you're good to go. Okay, Not too too difficult. Major takes into account that there is some major stuff that needs to go on. So maybe it is like like us, we're taking a 10-acre property and we're splitting that into potentially 55. In that, you need to get the entire drafting done of where the roads are going to go, where the water supply is going to be where the entry and exit points are to that, um, all the minimum setbacks, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of the extra stuff that needs doing there from a paperwork perspective. And then the application process is with the county is a lot different. Because not only do you have to submit that, but it goes to a number of different processes in the county and the city to get the right approvals in place um, to then be able to proceed. So that's got an added cost to it, but also an added time frame and the expertise that you need to add into that as well so there's minor that is easy pretty a lot of those you can do yourself major is when you're going to need the help of surveyors drafts people um, designers uh, environmentalists all of that stuff that that goes into the application itself
2: and i think AJ, that, that that was a great summary of what I've seen of minor and major subdivisions, and I think that people really need to make sure they're doing their research if they're intending to do entitlement deals or minor or major subdivisions because yep. a minor subdivision in certain areas is just as complex as a major subdivision in other areas, and it all depends on the local regulations where How when right. you're attempting to get started, in my mind, it's walk before you run of... Yeah. Do the paper lots where a lot of times with major subdivisions, not only do you have to create the plans for all of the horizontal development, road access and utilities and everything like that, you actually have to implement it. You have to make the roads. You have to make sure that every lot is going to have uh, access to electric water and wastewater and that sort of thing, depending on the local regulations uh, that you're dealing with. So assess what and how much work you're willing to do and how much money and time you're willing to put into it. And also remember... Just like AJ said, there's people out there that are experts at this type of stuff, land use consultants and everything like that, where you can find it and bring it to them and they're going to help you out along the way.
0: Correct. Correct. Might be helpful, guys, if I just um, share my screen here. Sure. Uh, Let me go into this one here. Can you guys see this? Yep. Excellent. So just um, this is the the current case study that we're working with at the moment, right? So it's 9.5 acres. Now, what you need to also look at, and this is where you're starting to work with surveyors and designers, et cetera, because a lot of people go, oh, 9.5, that's great. Well, no, 20% of that needs to be set aside for roads, pathways, et cetera. So essentially, we've only got 7.6 acres to work with. The initial, when we're doing the initial numbers for a property, a couple of things that we're looking at. Number one, what is the land currently worth? So over here, we've got some current land comp of what the land could potentially be worth as in. But then we want to do some scenario mapping. So with the current zoning to this property, it was zoned um, RM. But before, when I mentioned future designation, this property also had the future designation of RC. So that allows us to get more onto the property, which is great. So at the current zoning, so we're doing what I call here, best versus worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is still excellent. But we also want to know, especially at the moment, guys, for anyone listening, you know, when it comes to the housing crisis and affordable housing, when you're looking at these deals, you need to be in the mindset of what is the market doing and what is the market demanding at the moment in this particular area. Now, in this area in in Florida that we're doing, this this has got some awesome houses around it because as you can see, when we're looking at um, properties that are on larger allotments, so 0.2 of an acre, um, properties are selling in the mid to high 300s, which is great. Okay, some good comps there for those. When we're looking at properties that are maybe a little bit smaller, so this one here, current lot size, uh, 8712 square feet, and we're looking at houses in the 2000. Over here, smaller lot size, but we're also looking at smaller houses. And these are often more affordable, but equally we can get some differentiation with instead of just single story, we might do double story and do some more um, density in there as well. So this future zoning allows us to go from five properties per acre to seven properties per acre. And that doesn't sound overly big, but when you add that up current, we can get 38 properties on the the whole project. Now we're up to 53. So oof, the numbers start to look good. So first of all, we're running some comps on as is versus future. Then what we're doing is looking further down, what are the project estimate? So if we just look at these here for a second, what we're currently looking at, now this is where you've got to have the mindset of a developer. So going in and doing some research on and, and picking up the phone to local builders and developers, what are they building? What's their build cost? What does that look like? You know, what kinds of properties are they, are they, are people wanting to build with them? All of that stuff, because supply and demand really comes into play when you're looking at these types of projects as well. So scenario one, where we can get potentially 38 versus scenario two, where we can get potentially 53, um, the numbers start to look quite different. So, total project value, this is full development value. So, once the properties have been developed, got a potential value of somewhere between 13 to 16 million. The agreed land sales price, I'll come back to this in a second because this is where the property owner gets involved. If we buy the land as is, this is max what we can pay for it. If we're then selling the land entitlement, so uh, once we can sell that, we're looking at somewhere between 2 and 2.5 million. And the max, so we've got a min and max on both of these. So at the the worst case scenario being that we get somewhere in the 30s on the property, we should be able to sell to a developer somewhere between two to three point four million. At the higher end, we should be able to sell somewhere between two point five to four point one million. Looking at best and worst case scenarios here. So then we're breaking that down to the total profit, profit min, profit max. Um, but what we're also doing is keeping into account costs. Now, this is a, what you call uh, quite a, a major subdivision. We're not building roads per se. Um, we're not putting in infrastructure, but we're doing quite a lot to get this property ready. So we want to uh, look at the entitlement costs itself. So here's a note here, guys. I mentioned um, Mike Marshall before. I'm going to give him a bit of a plug because all the deals that we do, him and his team are the ones doing the actual technical work behind it because we're not the expert. Our role is to go and broker the deal to get the deal bring that to market make sure that we're honoring the property owner and what they could extract from it honoring the developer in what they need to get to in order to fulfill their pipeline but equally having it so everyone wins so we've got the entitlement cost in there project management cost realtor because we do want to have a realtor to potentially market the properties for us um, clothing costs involved so you're looking at somewhere between total project cost of around 394000 up to about um, just over half a million, depending upon, again, which scenario we get approved for. So I'll pause there and just kind of see if you guys have got questions on that before I, I talk about how we've now structured the deal.
1: Yeah, one thing I really wanted to dive into is backing up a little bit. Before you started this, you know, you mentioned the, what the seller is going to get how did you build trust with him to get to the point where he was comfortable joint venturing?
0: Yeah, really great question. Number of phone call, number of Zoom calls. Um, I prefer to meet with people like face to face if we can. So whenever we did, um, you know, we had a number of quick conversations first just to kind of look at what he wanted to do. Uh, then we got on an actual Zoom and we went through all of these numbers with him. So number one is full transparency. Don't hide anything from your property owner about what you're potentially going to make on this and what they're going to potentially make on this. Essentially what we're doing for him is taking him from a current as is value of the min four to five hundred to potentially, with no effort on his part, potentially making him 1.2 to 1.3 million. So when you keep it focused on that, you know, we are trying to get a win here for you, Mr. Orbis' property owner. Yes, we're going to get rewarded at the end of the day, but you can either leave your property as is and nothing's ever going to get done with it. But watch all this development going on around you. If a developer comes, they're going to do all the work that we're doing and they will only offer you an as is price because they're going to have to do all the entitlement before they do the project anyway. So your decisions are hold, sell to a developer because they are going to want to extract as much value as they can, partner with us, well, we can do that value extraction up front, allow you to walk away with more, and all that you need to give us is time. That's it.
2: Yeah, I so not bringing
0: uh, it back to that.
2: I I love AJ the simplicity of the pro forma that you showed us right there, and what I think a lot of people need to recognize and go onto YouTube and look at this whenever uh, whenever you can, because AJ put in a lot of assumptions of minimum, maximum, and. Uh, a decent standard deviation of what the anticipated project costs, as well as the uh, project revenue would be. And whenever you look at that, because recognize, especially if you're new to this, what those are whenever you're making a pro forma is those are assumptions where uh, you need to factor in every single last assumption that you can. And in the quote unquote disaster, worst case scenario, it's still a very profitable deal. Then it's going to be a great deal. But I really do want to hear the uh, as many specifics as you can about uh, this joint venture innovation agreement, yeah. whatever you want to call it with the seller, because I think depending on who you are and your risk tolerance, uh, there can be a lot of fear associated working with someone you don't really know. Even if you have developed rapport and uh, gotten to know them a lot over the last 11 months, uh, the structure of that contract, I think, is something that would be very beneficial to take a look
0: yeah let's go through this guys because i think this is pivotal right now a bit of a disclaimer up front we have spent thousands and thousands of dollars with real estate attorneys working this structure out so i'm going to give people the high level overview but i would encourage everybody um to really think about structuring this legally and properly for the state that you're going to be doing business in okay so where did we start? First of all, we agreed with the, um, the seller what the property was currently worth. Now, here's the caveat here. They paid $750,000 for their property many, many, many years ago. Did they pay too much? Yes. Is the property worth that at the moment? No. But what our seller's interest was if he, he wanted to protect his initial investment, we said, okay, we can protect that because we know that at the end of the project where we want to be. So what we really agreed with them is, is what is the current value of the property that we are protecting? What we then do is, is, so here's the landowner. We have a promissory note for that property that gets put into what we call a project company. So the project company, and we'll just name the project company, you know, what the property is. Project company is set up as an LLC. Okay. The role that the property owner has in that is they simply are the land owner and they deed the land into the LLC. In exchange, we give them a promissory note for the agreed value of that land. So that what essentially that does, guys, is that's ensuring the property to say, we recognize that we we agree that your property is worth X. So that note is the first thing that, that is the protection mechanism that gives them reassurance. Is there a we, timeline on that promissory note? The, t- the timeline okay. is as per the project if the project takes six months to do, that's the promissory note. So the the note itself is written in the essence that the note is only paid when project is completed. Make sense, guys?
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: So project company is here. So we know what the, the landowner has given. We are the project managers, and we're also known as subdivision consultants. Now, the way that you want to structure the LLC or the project company is that the project managers, so us, we are the ones that have the ability to actively manage within the LLC. The The land or the property owner does not have an active role in the project itself. So be really clear because the last thing that you want is the property owner to get into your business and to start to unravel the work that you're doing.
2: So uh, sorry sorry to keep diving into the question. So with, within the operating agreement of that project company, are you guys as the project manager you have total operational control of the deal and you don't require them. They're not a signer. They're not anything on it. They're they're just the landowner.
0: You got it, Mason. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a really important point because a lot of people would just set up a standard LLC for this. It's not. This is where you need a real estate attorney to really help you unpack what is everybody's role in the process and how do you, number one, the, the integrity of this is you want to protect the property. You want to protect the property owner. But you also want to protect yourself against the property owner getting too involved, but also selling out the property from underneath you. So the whole operating agreement really needs to outline all of that and make sure that those protection mechanisms are in place.
2: So, what AJ is saying, you guys, is don't get on legal Zoom to get your operating agreement for free online.
0: This is not a 101 operating agreement. Yeah. <laughs> Very specific. So, project company set up. Um, and within the operating agreement and the terms and the conditions around the the project itself, we've got a profit share agreement. Now, in this case, the landowner and us, we are profit sharing 50-50, okay? So then we once we've done the project itself and we go to the subdivision sale, we know that there's the potential, and again, this is based upon different scenarios that I went through before, there's the potential at the low end and the high end to be somewhere in here. So once the subdivision is done and sold, First thing that gets paid out is the promissory note. So we're paying back the owner for their as, as a thank you to say, you gave us the property to work on. Here's the promissory note that's paid. The next thing we're going to do is cover all of those hard costs that I went through. So all the subdivision consultant surveys, environmental reports, the setup, the application, all of that stuff gets paid out from the project itself. The remaining proceeds then get split between 50% landowner, 50% to us. So we've got the ability in this particular project, depending upon how many parcels we can get on there and is approved, of we've got the ability to earn somewhere between four hundred and sixty-three thousand up to just over a million. And so does the property owner. But the property owner gets that on top of their seven hundred and fifty thousand. And
1: that seven fifty is already above what it's actually worth as is. So
0: Correct. You're- We really did. Now, ideally, what we would probably do um, in this scenario with future property owners is I would be pushing for here, okay? But you do have to keep in mind that a lot of them will have the mindset about what they're willing to protect and what they're willing to give up. So that's got to be part of your negotiation. Um, And then the other part of your negotiation is obviously deciding, Mm -hmm. I go back up to here, deciding what the split's going to be. So is it a 50-50 deal? Is it a 40-60 deal? Is it a 30-70 deal? Like what is it that's going to be appetite enough for the property owner to want to enter into this agreement with you, okay? So once we've done that workflow, um, we can then, yeah, we both both win in the end. Everybody wins. And that's the mindset that I want people to think about when it comes to doing these deals is don't start from a place of, oh, I'm going to get millions from this. Start from a place of how can I make this so good that the property owner just cannot say no.
2: So uh, a few questions, which I, I loved that workflow. I think it really simplified and explained kind of the map of money, uh, which can be confusing and complicated And seeing it. It it seems like everyone is protected in this deal, which is hard to do, uh, which, which is really great to see. But the project costs, so promissory note paid, project costs paid. I apologize if you already said this, but are you guys as the deal managers, deal operators, paying for those project costs out of pocket at the beginning. Yep. Um, okay, you are. And then that makes... We,
0: sense we get that yeah. paid back before we profit share.
2: Perfect. And and I think that right there, the way that deal is structured makes a lot of sense for most people. And that's how you're going to attract uh, the landowner or potentially your finance partner, depending on how you structure it. If you're able to bring in a finance partner, it is... They want their capital first. yeah. And if you can say, hey, you're going to get your basis back on this or your initial promissory note or whatever it is back first before everything else, that's going to be a real selling point uh, within any sort of JV. 100%.
0: You, you've got to pay the people that are doing the work, first. Then, you know, what is left over? You know, icing on the cake, right? The way that you structured that, your incentives
1: are aligned. You both have to get in the game. It's just, it's very synergistic set up that way. So
2: everyone's on the same page and aligning
1: incentives is so
2: important. Uh,
1: but well, Mason?
2: Yeah. And I, I think something to remember with this is with that budget, recognize the position that AJ and her team are in, which is they are the last to eat in this deal. So you need to make That's sure. That's a good that way to put Mason.
0: We're the last to eat. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not well, I'm a lot of it that way. And that makes me go, oh, but you, you're right, you know? Yeah.
2: You... Well, and it it's a real selling point, but I think you have to really, really budget for whatever those operating costs are in the worst case scenario, because when you're doing a minor or a major subdivision and you have to pay that promissory note and then your operating costs, or which is just a recoupment of costs on your end, recognize that if you're selling 5, 10, 20, 55 lots, you're not going to eat for a while. You have to sell a good amount of land before you're actually going to be making yeah. any money at all. So don't put yourself in a position where you're over leveraged and you're using un- unsecured or unsafe debt to pay for those operating expenses. Because then it's oh crap. What if it takes two years for all these parcels to sell? Yeah, and I'm not going to make any money at all for two years or
0: Correct. three. Years. So just make sure. You really need to make sure that, that you're okay with the time frame around this stuff. And what I'd also say to that guys is you know, looking at the, the estimations that we had around all the project costs, we overinflated that quite a lot because you want to always be working with what's the worst case scenario, because then if you can perform better than that, that's good. You don't want to enter into this stuff with let's be really, really lean. And then all of a sudden your budget's 40% over, you know, that's going to cause everybody confusion and pain. And the other thing to, to note as well, even though our property owner is like a silent partner in this, we are going to be providing him with monthly reports on spend, activity, et cetera. We're having full transparency throughout the entire process. There is nothing that this property owner will not know about. And in the operating agreement, he can actually ask us for an update of the financials at any point in time. So the whole thing about this, I want people to kind of get this bit. When you're doing deals at this kind of level, each deal you need to treat as a business. It's not, this is a deal on my deal desk. This is a business. You are project managers in a business. The property owner is like a part owner in your business and everybody involved, you need to treat that as is, you know, weekly meetings with your project team, um, running your P&L and your balance sheet on everything that that, that's, that you're looking at in in there. Having a, a dedicated project manager to really make sure you've got a, a really well-defined project plan with key milestones and key gates, if you like, on things that you need to meet. So it's not as, you know, it looks, it looks simple, right? But it's actually not.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a whole business right there. And, yeah. and, and that's the thing is it's a, a new business, a new entity, a new project and everything associated with it. And yeah. Question on the operating costs. Are you guys charging a developer fee on it? So you can pay yourself during this process? Or yeah. is the money you're making entirely from the profits? What?
0: Uh, a bit of both. Yeah, a bit of both.
2: Good. And I, I think, listen to that right there and recognize you're doing a ton of work for these people. There is nothing wrong with getting paid for doing all this work. You have salary costs, you have cost of capital, you have all these expenses associated with it. If you can charge some some form of a developer fee, uh, make sure that you build that into your operating agreement, project costs, and you're just transparent.
0: Yeah, I, I love that, Nathan. It might not even be a developer fee because you're essentially project managers in, in the corporation or the LLC itself. You can write into your operating agreement that you get charge of management fee. You know, there's a whole range of ways that you can slice and dice this again so everyone wins. But you just got to have that mindset, guys. Don't get greedy and be from it. Everyone wins. Because the minute the the property owner starts to see you being greedy, guess what they're going to do? I'm out of here. I'll go with someone that's not as greedy, right? You, you've you got to do this from a position of how does everybody walk away from this with a big smile on their face?
1: Yeah. So so quite simply, this is really consulting for equity where the seller is your built in financier. And what I think is most important, most important is you structured it so that uh, no, is not coming due until the project sells. It's not a ticking time bomb. It's not a hard money loan. And I think that is so essential to to just be able to sleep at night throughout the process.
0: Just on that point as well, Dan, we do have backup kind of solutions built into the operating agreement around what happens if it doesn't sell? What happens if the timeframe get blown out? You know, or you've got to think about all those scenarios and build them in and already be up front with potential solutions around that. Um, So we do have in the operating agreement that if the property doesn't sell uh, and we end up in a situation where what we will probably do is pay out the promissory note and call the project done. Um, Because we, again, you want to protect that initial investment of the property owner. So their worst case scenario is all they're giving up is time. Worst case.
1: Okay. So we talked a lot about the structure of the deal. One thing I want to hit on a little bit more, let's say I send out some mailers, I get 10 acres, a lead on 10 acres near an area where there's a lot of new construction, a lot of smaller subdivisions around it. AJ, who is actually doing the work of taking the big piece and and splitting it up? Who is the expert to talk to ahead of time who then will also uh, execute the process of taking that big piece and and splitting it in smaller and and telling you what you can or can't do? Both at the city and then on the private side.
0: Yep. Yep. So first thing, it's uh, it's definitely talking to city planning and zoning, and finding out all of those designations. So future designation, current density. Ask them as well when you're when you're on the phone with them. Ask them what are some recent projects that have been approved? Um, what are some recent projects where the zoning was was changed to match the future need of what the area is is leaning into? So ask all those things because it's really great to have some case studies, and and they're all public available, right? So ask, find out, do some research into that that detail. Then it's really about finding a subdivision consultant who knows how to take this deal and, and make it work. In our case, that that is Mike Marshall. Um, but there are some other people out there that specialize in this now. I'd highly recommend him. I'm gonna give him a plug here because he is amazing. And he's got, you know, more than twenty years experience actually working in city planning and dining. So he's done everything from small subdivisions up to major shopping centers, like he's done it all. So he knows instantly how to make that property work. One of the other things we did along this journey is I actually introduced my property owner to Mike. So Mike got on a Zoom with us and as our subdivision consultant, because he's part of the project, um, he had a a really good open conversation with the property owner about all the nuts and bolts and different things that that we'll be looking at. That was huge in building up the trust with the property owner because they were like, oh, you guys do know what you're doing. So don't be afraid to bring other people into the conversation um, or other evidence into the conversation from the city to really demonstrate that you have done your research, that you do have a team to execute on this as well. Well, and does Mike have in-house architects or a civil engineer? I mean, who is actually drawing? He's got a list of people, got a list of people a mile long, Dan. And um, so, yeah, getting a civil engineer involved and, and all of that is is part of what, what his expertise is.
2: Got it. Okay. That's what I was looking for out. And AJ, I've spoken with Mike before. Uh, he almost helped us with a minor subdivision that we did in um, in the Phoenix area. But after learning how simple the process was, we ended up not not needing his services out there. So I think just remember when you don't know something about this process, if this sounds way too complex for you, there are people out there that charge a very reasonable fee that will be the orchestrator of this. Of they know. They know the codes, they know the people involved, they know the team, and that can be your main point of contact with it. You don't necessarily have to be talking to the city and the county and everyone else involved where if you especially build it into your operating agreement of Mike Marshall is going to be representing us in these various things, depending on the type of subdivision and everything. And I think one other thing is the level of transparency, AJ, that you've been operating with the landowner is I think one of the real keys to success yeah uh for you in this process of you're not trying to brush anything under the rug or anything like that you're saying hey we're trying to make as much money as we can for us and for you here's all the people on the team and i feel like a lot of times the land flipping community they want to hide what they're doing yeah of i'm making money and that is wrong of me i don't need i don't want to tell them and realize this person they're a co-business owner with you if you structure your deal this way. So they're on your team. So communicate with them and tell them everything too, for a multitude of reasons. But yep. first and foremost for me is avoid avoid litigation. Uh, so yeah.
0: And we've gotten to the stage with this property owner that he's, the, the trust is so good now that he's like, I want you guys to make you know as much as you can out of this, which is awesome, right? Sorry. <laughs> He he knows that, that in order for him to win, we need to win. And I think that that's really where you want to get it to.
2: Well, question, does he have any other properties?
0: No. That what he, this, say, did it say, we've already asked him that, mate. So, that
2: if, if they own a prime piece of develop, development land and this project goes well, and they talk to their friends about it and talk to community members about it, that can be another referral source or yeah. another lead source for you.
0: Exactly. And what I'd also encourage people to do as they're going through these types of deals is document the process, document the case study, document everything, because then again, when your next deal comes up, that is something you can use as part of your negotiation strategy. Hey, we just helped this property owner out. This was the outcome. This is the process that we went through. So being able to share that openly and transparently again, just goes a long way in building trust.
1: Yeah. Uh, Alicia, anything else you want to say on this deal specifically? Any takeaways, any examples that that really drive them a lesson? Anything we didn't ask that we should have regarding the deal?
0: Yeah, probably one thing. So this partic- particular property owner, he owns it with two other family members. Um, and what we should have probably done a bit more research with up front, but this has been a learning, is how they were all structured onto the the title of the property. Because there were some issues there with paperwork um, that we needed to sort out about their ownership um, and the split of their ownership. Won't go into detail with that, but it was awesome. Again, the real estate attorney picked that up um, and went, hang on a minute, we got to restructure these guys first before they put the, the deal in. Um, and we got that sorted straight away, which was great. So again, just ask your real estate attorney, depending upon how the current title of the property is structured, really understand if there's any impact on that with what you're about to do as well. Because when you get to the end and you're paying stuff out, if there's a number of different owners there, if they don't have their stuff structured right, that's going to impact them. So just make sure that that's all all asked as well. Um, Also, really talk to them about potential capital gains impacts and um, if there's any way that they need to consider that. Because again, it's great for everyone to make money, but then if they lose a bunch of that and having to pay capital gains, something that they might need to consider and something you might need to build into your negotiation.
1: Yeah. I really want to uh, highlight that first point because I didn't think about that, but you're you're transferring title to the new LLC, but you're not actually buying it. So was there just automatically a title search done before you transferred to the new LLC? Yeah. Okay. Because I'm just thinking out loud and here. so many people are doing this right now where they're joint venturing with the seller. And I wonder how many of them are doing it in ways where they just have a simple JV agreement they sign, and they don't even do a title search ahead of time, and they might not know if there's other people with an interest or liens or problems. And that,
0: yeah, yeah, it's part again part of the operating agreement is um, is the property needs to be free and clear before it can be um, titled over into the project. Uh, So all of those little things, right? That sometimes you just don't think about until someone highlights it, and it's like, oh, we didn't think of that.
2: Well, and, and Dan, I mean, exactly and AJ exactly of don't skip over what your typical due diligence is uh, or would have been if it was just a simple land flip. And yeah. I think technically that is a sale is you purchased that on a promissory note that deed was checked, deed was transferred and the purchase price was set already. So exactly uh, making sure all the owners are noted, but if there's a mortgage on the property, uh, because if there's a mortgage on the property um, in some capacity, then there's potentially and highly likely a due on sales clause that you might have to front more of that initial, in this case, 750000 at the beginning of the deal to pay off whoever the potential lien holder. Uh,
0: or talk about how you structure that into the deal. So at the end, you know, instead of paying the promissory note off first, anyone else who's got a first lien position, they get paid first. So again, really think, yeah, thinking about all that stuff around what is the right structure that everyone
2: wins. 100%. And that that comes back into the title search and just making sure you're doing all your typical due diligence uh, that you would do any other time. So awesome. This is Dan
1: Habergost and Mason McDonald with the Big Picture Blueprint signing off.
2: And that's it for today's episode of The Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating. And we'll see you in the next episode.